Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Conversation in Veterinary Pathology, the ACVP podcast, brought to you by the American College of Veterinary Pathologists. The purpose of this podcast is to bring the veterinary pathology community together to bolster our connections and spread knowledge. This segment aims to highlight those in our field at all stages of their careers from all backgrounds and subspecialties. We will be talking to everyone from veterinary students to the pillars of the profession, hearing more about unique stories and how pathologists are not always just at the scope. Veterinary pathologists are out there changing the world. I'm Hannah Atkins, and this is Carolyn Labriola. Welcome. Today's conversation is with Dr. Amy McNeil. Dr. McNeil is an associate professor and clinical veterinary pathologist in the Department of Pathobiology and the Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory at Colorado State University. There, she coordinates the Microbiology, Immunology, and Pathology Department Combined Residency Program. She runs a lab that studies pox virus pathogenesis and genetically engineers pox viruses for use in cancer treatment. So let's get started with the conversation with Dr. McNeil. Welcome. Thank you. Very glad that you agreed to sit down with us today. Yeah, I'm happy to. I would like to start off our conversation by asking, could you tell us about your training journey? Sure. Um, I was one of those kids who always thought they wanted to be a veterinarian and um, do, you know, multi-species practice and in a little nice farmhouse in New Hampshire where I grew up. And um, so I ended up going to University of Florida for undergrad because they had a strong veterinary program and pre-veterinary program. And I ended up getting lucky enough to get into that veterinary program. So I was in Florida for a long time. I did escape and go back to New Hampshire and, and live my dream for a year and rapidly realized that I really wanted to do pathology. And... Um, pursue a PhD. So I actually went back to University of Florida to do those things. Um, I was able to begin my PhD at Chans in the, in the College of Medicine. And then with uh, about a year after I started my PhD, um, I convinced my PI that it would be okay if I did a residency at the same time. <laughs> and so I worked at the vet school there with Rose Raskin and John Harvey and Rick Alleman as my mentors. So then was that something at the University of Florida in your program that was a bit unique, doing the residency and the PhD together? Yeah, it was. The University of Florida, um, at that time, it was a straight residency. Uh, I think it still might be. They might have a master's attached to it. But um, yeah, I had to convince both sides that it was okay to do the dual <laughs> dual work. <laughs> and obviously you were very successful with that. Yeah, it worked out well for me. I mean, it was a lot of work, of course, but um, I enjoyed it a lot and it got me where I am. When during your, either during veterinary school previous or during your year doing your previous dream job, when were you introduced to clinical pathology? I think... The first time I was introduced to it was in my second year of vet school, so the typical ClinPath uh, class that everybody takes. And I just, I really loved it. I, I love looking at data and trying to analyze it and figure out what the problem is underneath all of that. And um, I actually started thinking at that time that I might want to pursue a PhD, uh, but I was already in the vet program and trying to do a DVM PhD at that point was too late. And then in my senior year, because I enjoyed clinical pathology quite a lot, I um, picked up extra rotations in clinical pathology to try to see if I really liked it or not. Did you feel that those helped you during that one year of practice? Yeah, I do. Definitely. It was really interesting. Um, when I first started working, we had our own chemistry analyzer and CBC analyzer at the practice, but none of the doctors actually felt comfortable using them. <laughs> so they sent everything off. They're like, only use these in emergency because we never check them and never do QA, QC. I'm like, <laughs> that might be bad. 
So it was, I don't know, it was kind of funny. Um, I was always one of those practitioners who would aspirate everything and try to look at it. And um, yeah, there were lots of slides in the back because of me. So <laughs> and I'm sure you were better able to help your clients than using those techniques. Yeah, I think it did help a lot. I was, um, you know, as a new veterinarian, pretty careful not to try to overstep <laughs> and overdiagnose things. But it was really good and educational for me to compare what I thought was going on to what the pathologist actually said. And great practice already yeah. uh, learning before you began your residency. Yeah. So then transitioning in, you must have needed to apply pretty early on during that year. Is that true? Um, well, so I applied to the PhD f program first as a separate thing. And once I was accepted into the PhD program, I had a year really to um, decide to try to also apply for the residency program. So it was a two-step thing. And that year gave me time to take the courses, a lot of the courses I needed to for my PhD, to do rotations and figure out what lab I wanted to be in. And by that time, I was um, ready to, to try to do both. It's very ambitious that you knew what you wanted and you went for it. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, I'm, that's one thing that's helped me a lot throughout my entire life is being quite goal-oriented. Um, so it's nice to be able to reach those goals sometimes. <laughs> and, I mean, sitting here in your office, surrounded by beautiful microscopes in this gorgeous place, it seems to me like you have achieved quite a bit. Yeah, I've been, I feel good that I've been able to do as much as I have in this field. And to help the, the animals and humans. Yeah, a lot of the work that I do for research is somewhat translational. Um, so I guess helping owners is one thing too, but also trying to translate things that we learn into things that will help both animals and humans is exciting. When did that passion spark within you? So um, I was really interested in immunology for my PhD. That was the work I really wanted to do. I, I thought I'm definitely going to work with autoimmune diseases because we don't know enough about them. And uh, I did my rotations and ended up in a virology lab somehow, <laughs> looking at how viruses manipulate the immune response of their host. And um, that was really exciting, but um, it's hard as a veterinarian to do that kind of work sometimes because you do have to use animal models, and that can be tough. Learned a lot, learned a lot of pathology through that, but um, it wasn't until the very end of my PhD where some data started coming out that you could actually use these as oncolytic viruses to try to help cure cancer. Um, and that I saw one lecture on that and got super excited about it and went up to the speaker afterwards and said, I want to do this in dogs. And so that's kind of been my path since 2005, a long time ago. <laughs> that's fascinating. So it was a human pathologist or the, the lecture was on human medicine and that inspired you? Yeah, yeah, it was... Um, the person who gave the lecture was a very famous virologist in the field, um, Grant McFadden. And his focus was really on um, mouse models at the time and then trying to translate that to, into humans in, in the cell culture dish. Were you able to implement that work directly into your studies during your PhD, or did that come afterwards? That really came afterwards. Um, my PhD was very focused on um, viral pathogenesis and immunology. Um, but I took everything that I learned from that. And then um, when I moved to University of Illinois to start my career in academics, I um, started working on that in cell culture and canine cells that we were able to isolate from patients that are coming in to get their tumors removed. How do you see the investigatory aspect of your work as influencing your teaching style? With, um, with my laboratory, I try to do a lot of work with undergrads and veterinary students during veterinary summer scholars programs to try to get them excited about the basic research and 
Virology and immunology. Uh, I do teach immunology to the freshmen, here, first year veterinary students here at CSU. Um, and I really try to try to add some practical things into a di very didactic course. Um, we're changing our curriculum, so this is all going to be different soon. Um, but I try to help them see how immunology is so fundamental to pathology and the health of the animals and everything that we do as veterinarians. So, um, you know, hopefully they'll realize that I'm not teaching about individual crazy molecules like IL-31 or something for no reason, <laughs> that they'll actually use those to help their patients um, in the future. And I try to get them to see how exciting it is, at least for me, and hopefully for them, that by doing research and looking at things with a very um, scientific lens, you know, trying to understand the details behind things leads to just huge innovation and improvement in health uh, eventually. Um, still, um, try to tie that in and um, there are people, students who are not that interested in that, but hopefully they can see um, the benefits of it, even if it's not something they want to pursue directly. I'm sure that your passion actually does inspire some people. You know, uh, immunology is difficult, and even if there are students that might not be initially interested, it sounds like your strategy is aimed at getting them engaged. Did you, with this didactic training, did you take any aspects from the courses that you were taught during your PhD to bring into your, um, your in-classroom training? Yeah, I, I think all of the training that I've done, you know, influences how I teach now. And, um, really trying to remember what stuck and, and how different teaching methods helped me learn. Um, you know, being a clinical pathologist, I loved laboratory classes. I love teaching those as well. So being able to work uh, in small groups with people actively doing a technique or a diagnostic that they're going to use to then learn how to treat their patient is one of the, my favorite aspects of of teaching veterinary medicine. Right, and showing those showing those students that you can go out and you can use that analyzer. Don't just let it sit there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah, not just that, but how to make sure it's telling you the right thing. <laughs> right. So I think that's really important and something that um, people who aren't, you know, crazy QAQC freaks like our clinical pathologists um, forget sometimes that just because it tells you a number you need to make sure that number's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Does that go along with your very goal-oriented personality? I think it does a little bit. I mean, it goes along with the interest in the PhD as well and um, making sure your results are valid and, and, you know, telling you what you think they are. Uh, so doing a method to try to show one aspect of your experiment multiple different ways to, to verify what your, what your results are is always part of my training and still important in my career as a pathologist, too. Right, the repeatability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and not just the repeatability, but the ability to, to use multiple tests to, to help build a case, right? So everything's supportive of what your diagnosis is rather than discordant or <laughs> telling you different things. Looking at you right now, it seems to me like you are thinking of an example. Is there something <laughs> in your mind when you say um, that? Well, I don't know if I have a specific example, but I guess, I, I guess in anything when you're trying to diagnose disease, um, if you have ideas in mind, a list of differentials, things like that, um, using clinical pathology data and cytology and biopsies and things like that to help um, support 
what you think is going on, I think is one way to look at tests that maybe not everybody looks at. They look at tests to see if it'll give an answer, and I don't look at them that way. I look at tests to see if they will support my understanding of what's going on in that patient. I think that's a very beautiful way to look at the medicine and come to the conclusion. Yeah, I think it's important that people realize it's, uh, you know, how to choose a test, the best test to choose in that situation. And then if it's not supporting what you think is going on, um, maybe rethink or <laughs> choose additional tests that can help. Did that instinct come into play during your residency? Yeah, I think it did. A lot of it was because I was doing the PhD in the residency at the same time. So um, I was learning scientific methods in detail and, um, and then also learning how to try to diagnose disease by looking at a few cells on the slide or, you know, some blood work or something. Um, and so it really did um, make a difference to know what was going on with the patient, what the clinician was thinking, and how that reflects on what I was seeing under the microscope. Absolutely. You carved out your own path doing the PhD and the residency at the same time. How did you balance those two and work with your mentors on both sides to harmonize? Yeah, it's a tricky thing. Um, and I feel like anybody who's done a residency or a PhD or both understand that there's times where you're just overwhelmed <laughs> and it gets a little out of control. But um, for me, it was a great way to learn how to do my job now. So as a person in academics, you're doing multiple things at once. You know, we've talked about teaching a little bit. We've talked about research and then the clinical duty that I, that I have here. Um, and so you learn to balance those things. And, and by doing that early on during the residency and PhD, um, it's really helped me through my entire career. Um, a lot of it was, you know, asking for help when you need it. Um, so there were times where I would have an experiment running, but then I was on clinics the next week and cells needed to be collected or something. And I was lucky enough to have people in the lab that were willing to help with projects and, and I helped them when I could too. So, um, yeah, reaching out and asking for resident mates to help or, PhD students to help in the lab was was one of the keys. I think that sometimes can be as difficult to learn as managing your own time, knowing when to stop and ask for help. Yeah, it's important. I was probably pretty bad at it initially, <laughs> but um, yeah, it worked. It ended up working out. And great that you had some sounds like resident mates and lab staff. Yeah, I think um, that was part of the thing that made it somewhat successful. I went into a PhD lab that had that was quite large, a um, couple of different postdocs and several graduate students that I could reach out to for help. Um, and then the residency program was well established at University of Florida for clinical pathology then, and um, they had enough faculty and I had other resident mates that um, were there. It wasn't just, you know, lone, lone person on the <laughs> trying to do all the work. While you were an innovator in your, your journey at the University of Florida, you now teach students who are doing a combined program. Yeah, um, it's actually it's kind of ex exciting for me to be at a place like CSU who has the, the um, department oversees four residency programs. So the department I'm in is microbiology, immunology, and pathology is the name of the department here. And the four residency programs that are within that umbrella are an anatomic pathology residency, a clinical pathology residency, a microbiology residency, and um, the comparative animal medicine, so the lab animal residency. And they're all very different from one another. Um, I help to oversee 
part of the clinical pathology residency more than any of the others. Um, but my job here is to try to coordinate all four of them a little bit. So wow. yeah, it's, yeah. Well, thank goodness there are other people who have their specialty that can really help the coordination. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, for the pathology residencies, both the clinical pathology and the anatomic pathology residencies are um, currently combined with the PhD. And so we really look for people who are interested in, in pursuing that and delving into the to science. And yeah, it's, it's a different way to think about things and a different way to, to look at things. With this program, residents start off in a, the combined program. So they start off, and usually the first year, um, they're pretty focused on the residency and getting up to speed with what they need to know um, with that. And during that first year, um, we try to help them find a lab, get in a lab and find a PI. Um, and so the second and third years of the residency have a little bit less clinical duty for the residents so that they can start to focus on their on their PhD project. But it's very intense. And um, there are big transitions that, that are tough for the residents. Hopefully we can get most, most people over those humps and through it. I think there's always a point that, like I said before, it's, it's rough and uh, hard to balance, but our goal is by the end of the program that our resident PhDs, their postdocs actually, are able to find an area in pathology that they really enjoy, whether that be a primary faculty researcher or a diagnostician. We hope that we can give them, you know, what they need to be successful in what they want to do next. Having been through some of those difficulties, do you find that your experiences help you to help them? Yeah, I hope so. You know, it's different for every individual, so so that's always something to keep in mind, too. Um, but I hope that my experiences in trying to be independent and doing my programs together, even though they weren't meant to be that way, um, can help them find independence in their research and find independence on deciding what their ultimate career goal really is. Because it's a long program. It's a three-year residency, and usually people take another three years to finish the PhD after the residency. Um, so it's, you know, six or so years is a long time to... Um, find independence and figure out exactly what path to take. When during those six years does your average resident take phase one and phase two? We really try to encourage them to take them as soon as possible now. Um, they take phase one in their second year. And then we work with their PIs to try to educate the PIs about how important it is <laughs> to finish and take phase two. Um, most people will take it at the end of the third year, um, and most PIs are um, gracious enough and understanding enough to give them a couple of months off before that. Um, but there are some some cases, again, it's very individualistic. Um, there are some people who are right in the middle of writing a grant or, if, you know, really their research is going gangbusters and they can't take time off or don't want to take time off. And those people... Um, will take phase two and maybe their fourth year of the program or so. Um, so far, knock on everything, we've been very successful doing it that way. Um, but again, it, it really depends on the, the resident themselves, where they are in their PhD program, and um, how prepared they feel to sit down and take those boards. You carved your own path and are encouraging your students to do the same if they need to. Yeah, I... Yeah, I think it's really important. Um, it's very different than a you know DVM program, for, exists, for example, where what you do day-to-day -day is very scripted. You have to be in class at a certain time. You have to take exams at a certain time. You take boards at a certain time. When you get to the next stage, like a residency or a PhD, um, it's really more your own show. Um, yes, there are things you have to do. You're scheduled for clinics or you're scheduled for teaching or something. But really, you have to manage your own time and um, set your own goals and try to reach them. 
you've described a bit what someone who's going to do a residency PhD at CSU looks like. Could you describe how your program weighs different components of an application in determining who to interview? Yeah. Um, so we look at quite a few things, but probably the most important things are the candidate's own letter of intent and um, where they see themselves going, um, why they want to do the combined program is really important. And then the letters of recommendation are also a key aspect that we look at. We look at people who, I don't know, just have this inquiring mind, I guess. I know that sounds silly maybe, but, you know, people who are really interested in finding new answers to questions and learning about very specific ways that cells work and bodies work and things tie together. We look to see if people have an idea of what they're getting into. It's, it's really hard to know what you're getting into before you're in it. I mean, there's just no way to, to know until you're actually in the midst and doing it. Um, but people who have done a little bit of research, you know, just a summer program or maybe an undergrad, they worked in a research lab or something like that, um, we feel have a little bit of a better understanding of what the PhD part means. And then looking at, I mean, we do look a little bit at grades and how they did in pathology during vet school, <laughs> but ultimately it's um, how they express themselves, how they uh, explain why they're interested in a program like this is probably the most important thing to figure out who to interview. <laughs> and then when we actually bring people in to interview or for several years we did it on Zoom, unfortunately, because of COVID. We try to talk to them about, you know, if they've gotten an interest in any particular PI's lab or have an interest in any particular uh, type of research um, and then, you know, see if they have any interests that might be a little bit more specialized in pathology as well. Are they know, interested in aquatics? Are they interested in lung disease? Or, you know, just, <laughs> you name it, to see if they've thought about these things, if they, if they know that these are opportunities that they could have. Are there any focuses of your whole department that you find that people who have put in application or your residents are interested in that might drive them here or make them a better fit? Um, we... Honestly, our applicants and, and the people that we invite to, to work here um, have really varied interests, and that's actually nice. It's a good thing. Um, we do have a really strong cancer center, of course, in the Flint Animal Cancer Center here, and so it's not unusual to have people who are really interested in cancer biology and, and um, that which is a good fit for us. But we also have really strong programs with prion diseases and um, mycobacterium and vector-borne disease processes. So um, if people say that they have an interest in that, it, we, we know it could potentially be a good fit. Um, it perks our ears up a little bit, I have to admit. <laughs> and then we do have... Um, some of the anatomic pathologists here in particular have an interest in um, neuropathology or um, some wildlife pathology. Of course, the prion diseases intersect that pretty well. So there are some things that we um, maybe have a, a little bit of a, at least an interest in that, that they can pursue more if they want to. Yeah, I think one of the things about being in Colorado um, is that we don't actually have as many infectious diseases as you, as you might think. So if there's somebody who's really interested in fungal diseases, uh, I don't know if CSU is such a great fit for them. But yeah, you know, we there are things that are really interesting here that we try to focus on. And a lot of people do work with USDA here and with other groups. Um, uh, a lot of the research is, comes out of the wildlife in the Rocky Mountain National Park. And so, again, prion diseases and vector-borne diseases and things like that are, is an abundance of <laughs> that can 
be used for research and learning and teaching. I think that's very exciting, those opportunities. From what you've been saying, it goes hand in hand. It's not that you're necessarily saying yes or no to anyone based on anything. You want to be there for their success. And the most successful candidate will be one that is interested in what your program can offer, as well as having that specific personality type to be able to get through. Yeah, and that's, it's really hard to know sometimes um, just from an interview or from a piece of paper who those people are, but I think that's one of the reasons that we also rely on the um, recommendations of other people um, to try to get an idea. Are are these people who are goal-oriented and have a path in mind and but also have that openness and flexibility that the path can change a little bit based on whatever excites them, what they, what they see and what they learn. Right, because as you've seen, your PhD led you to a path, but you're not doing exactly what you were studying during your PhD. Right, yeah, and I think that happens a lot. Um, I think that's part of the purpose of a PhD is really to get that training in in how to do science so that you can apply that to something that really um, gets you excited and allows you to write a bunch of grants that never get funded and still do it. (laughs) Right. Being that scientist, being motivated. Are there any unique aspects of your institution's program that you could highlight for us? Yeah, I think... um, a couple of nice things. We have um, a large staff and faculty. Um, we try to make sure that um, we stay well-staffed and people are, are happy. Um, in clinical pathology, we probably have one of the largest groups of clinical pathologists in the country. I mean, it's it's pretty crazy. And we have a ridiculous number of cases, so we need all of us t- to manage that. Um, but I think it's really exciting that residents get to learn from so many different specialists. So, you know, there's more than seven clinical pathologists here at CSU. Not all of them are involved in the residency program. Some of them have their own research labs or things. But still, the residents can have access to those people and learn from them and see what those pathways look like. So in the anatomic pathology side, we also have a large number of faculty that residents can learn things from. And I think the more specialists who, with different training backgrounds that you learn from as a resident, the stronger you can become as a pathologist. Um, we also do a lot of cross-training between anatomic and clinical pathology. And I think that's really beneficial for everyone. So the clinical pathology residents um, do some biopsy service. We don't have them rotate with necropsy anymore. That was something that we did for a little bit while, and it was um, extremely stressful. (laughs) I think, you know, the fact that they're doing the dual program already um, to do that much is is tough for some people. So it's an option. Um, I don't think I've ever had a ClinPath resident take me up on it, but (laughs) but it's an option. They do tissue trimming, and they have a limited number of biopsies that they do um, in their second semester here. And they work directly with the anatomic pathologists on that. And the anatomic pathology residents rotate in clinical pathology um, about four weeks. They can do more if they want to. Um, We kind of graduate them up. So they start kind of being a visitor with us, and then they start writing up cases as as they do their further, you know, work in the ClinPath lab. So I think it's great just to have that little bit of cross-training helps. Um, But also, because we're so close, anatomic and clinical pathologists, the residents interact with each other a lot, too, and can learn from each other um, and hopefully feel like they have a larger community than than just their own specialty, too. Um, One of the things we do... Um, is Wednesday seminars where everybody comes together and we share cases with both biopsy data and cytology and maybe a little chemistry thrown in there too. 
do you ever get to follow those cases from, you know, the FNA to the necropsy floor? Yeah, we do that a lot, actually. It's one of the things that we really encourage our residents to do is those um, at least cytohistocorrelates, if not complete necropsy <laughs> follow-up. Um, but we really try to make sure that, especially the confusing cases or challenging cases or just really classic, interesting cases um, that we get to see what the outcome is for that patient. Um, during COVID, our program went ahead and purchased um, uh, Imager, Philips Imager. Um, so the biopsies are now all scanned in and everything is digital. Um, so that makes it really easy and exciting to be able to do those correlates to look up the case and um, see what the biopsy looks like. What quality inspires you the most in your students? I think the quality that just makes me want to do my job, makes me want to keep doing this all the time, is um, their excitement and just, I don't know, joy in being able to look at something under the microscope and identify what it is and be able to help the clinician choose what to do next for that patient. Um, it's, it's fun to be, you know, just even classic cases, it's fun to look at them with other people who share your enthusiasm for how pretty the cells are or <laughs> how much crazy background matrix there is. or I mean, silly things that probably non-pathology people don't care that much about, but it's fun. Um, and then, you know, just to see the residents go through the program and become more confident in their own capabilities as a diagnostician is it's great to see. That's really, that's why we're here. That's what we try to do. Um, their um, desire to to learn more, to delve in, to follow up on cases and do additional diagnostics. Um, we're really lucky to be able to do that a lot of the time here at CSU. And, you know, that makes it exciting to really delve in and get to a as close to a final diagnosis as you possibly can is, is great. And then when they continue on and become more of that PhD side than the clinical side, are you able to see them applying the techniques that you've taught them into their PhD work? Yeah, and I think that's, that's really important, actually. That's something that we try to let PIs know why the pathology part is so important, like we were talking about before with making sure they get to do boards at a reasonable amount of time. Um, you know, especially because a lot of the work that people do in their PhD is related to pathology. They're looking at pathology of disease or cancer or something. And having the DVM and having the pathology residency background makes them so much stronger as an investigator. They can ask questions in different ways that somebody who doesn't have that training may not think about or even know about to ask. And so they come and, and think about scientific questions and problems from a very different angle uh, and a large amount of knowledge that other people doing a PhD may not be able to do. Certainly seeing them um, use their ability to do necropsies correctly and read out biopsies and understand what's going on in any animal model that they might have is a huge asset for their, for their scientific career. You have advocated really well for your students, and thank you so much for telling us about how you're able to support them and about your program. I think it's wonderful what you're doing and what you and your colleagues are able to support future pathologists. But I would love to focus a bit more on you because I think that your work is fascinating. Your, your recent paper on the comparative pathology of orthopox virus, I find you to be a very succinct and educational writer and get in a lot of good information. Will you tell me about some of your research? <laughs> sure. And thank you because I don't I don't feel that way when I'm writing, so it's good to know somebody thinks that. <laughs> um, 
my work has, in my PhD, did focus on pox virus pathogenesis. And in particular, um, for those of you who have done a PhD, you know you, you, you know, pick one tiny gene to study out of this whole huge organism or virus or whatever you're working with uh, and really delve into how that gene works or, or what it does or what it's doing to the pathology. So um, my work really was focused on looking at how viruses have evolved to create certain proteins that target parts of the immune response and to use that knowledge that viruses don't want to carry around a lot of baggage. They're going to get rid of things they don't need and they're going to retain things that actually help them do their replicating job, which is really the job of a virus is to replicate and spread. Um, so it can teach us a lot about the host. And if a virus has to block that in the host, then the host is doing, you know, that's a really important part of the immune response. So that's what I focused on for my PhD. When I started moving into the oncolytic viral therapy field, um, you start to think about viruses a little bit differently. You start to think about how can we use them, you know, as little vehicles of, of anti-cancer agents or immune stimulants or something? And how can we do it safely? Because obviously you don't want to give a vaccine or an oncolytic viral therapy that might cause zombies to occur. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, that's been really interesting because you have to use your knowledge about the host and what their immune response is doing, particularly in a disease state. And then, and then um, you have to have a knowledge of the virus and its virulence factors and how you can manipulate that virus to make it a tool, uh, a therapy, instead of a pathogen. So um, I've done a lot of work um, on the pathogenesis end to understand all sorts of different orthopox viruses, so cowpox virus and how its genes work and vaccinia virus, which was the vaccine for smallpox. Um, so pretty classic pox viruses that people study. Um, but I also looked at myxoma virus, which is a completely different, it's a Lepori pox virus and um, how it interacts with the rabbit, but doesn't interact with other species. And so looking at those and seeing how to use them in different ways has just been what I do for, for a long time. Um, my um, papers on things like zo you know, zoonoses and things have followed just from my research and understanding and, and trying to uh, learn more about pox viruses as I go. Um, with the cancer research that I've done, a lot of it has been focused actually around a virus that I used in my PhD. Um, so we know it's attenuated in rabbits because we studied it in rabbits. And it increases apoptosis in cells. And so the idea is that maybe it'll be better oncolytic and safer. And so um, trying to use viruses in that way and really understanding the immune response more every time you every time you try a new virus and see what it does um, is is exciting and, and fun and there's a lot to think about because there's so many things that you can use these viruses with different immunomodulatory treatments for cancer can be used with oncolytic viruses and help hopefully making both better to treat disease Right, using for both canine and feline, right? But mm -hmm. then doing that translation and working towards using those in humans. Yeah, um, my focus really has been uh, canine more than anything else, um, in part because it's um, very difficult to get a n number of patients that that can try a treatment on um, depending on the, the disease process. So for my work, canine sarcomas have been a focus for a little while. I hope to expand into 
thing, other, other cancers. Um, but it's really interesting to look at those. Um, that realm of inquiry was actually driven by a colleague of mine who had a grandniece who had rhabdomyosarcoma. And um, he really encouraged me to, to look at this aspect and see whether or not um, we could eventually get this translated for kids with, with that disease process. Um, the Flint Animal Cancer Center here works quite closely with CU Boulder um, and Anschutz um, Cancer Center to try to get some of the findings that we've had in canines translated into humans. Um, and so there's a lot of work being done right now, particularly with osteosarcoma. Not, not my work, other people's work. Collaborative. Um, yes. Um, that uh, hopefully can help advance some of that. Uh, and help both dogs and then kids also. And I think that that kind of model is being much more well accepted now. It, it took a long time and a big push by veterinary oncologists um, and pathologists, but uh, I think that's finally being recognized as a, a good model for human disease, uh, at least with particular types of cancer that have either similar genetic mutations or similar clinical course. How does your relationship with the Flint Cancer Center facilitate your research? It's been really important to have that um, collaborative effort. Um, the group is very uh, welcoming to pathologists. <laughs> they, uh, we, we work well together, and I think there's a lot of mutual um, benefit for working together. Um, they have a, a pretty strong uh, biobank here and a lot of information on those patients and a lot of data, uh, including biopsy data. Um, that's really important to bring a full picture of what the disease was like in that individual animal. Um, they do a lot of work through the um, Morris Animal Foundation, Golden Retriever Lifetime Study here. Um, in fact, one of our residents is a Morris Animal Foundation fellow. This is actually a person who already has had their PhD finished, so they have a DVM PhD, and we're able to hire them with the help of Morris um, to do their pathology residency with us, and um, instead of doing a second PhD, <laughs> which nobody probably wants to do, I don't know, um, they are a key um, help in looking at the golden golden retriever lifetime data that comes in and the pathology that's associated with tumors that those animals have. So different kind of training, but similar. Um, dual program still, in a way. You have given us a great overview of who you are, your teaching technique, and what CSU brings for both potential future residents and to the community and the veterinary world. I would like to ask a silly question. Do you have any pets? I do have pets. I have, well, currently, I have two horses, two cats, and one dog. In the past, I've had a bison and some lambs, random other <laughs> small pets, <laughs> small pocket pet things. <laughs> so that's, that's <laughs> you've had a, a veritable farm. <laughs> Does your knowledge of their diseases affect how you interact with them? Yes, it does. I, I would say yes. Um, you know, I try not to overstep myself. I've been a pathologist for a long time now. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I always ask my medicine friends what they would recommend to treat them. But um, no, it, it, it helps me, I hope, be a better parent <laughs> for my pets. Um, definitely helps me recognize, you know, if there's this issue that's starting or if they're not feeling well, um, my training as a veterinarian makes me see that faster. Um, it makes it easier when they're not doing well. Um, I recently euthanized my German Shepherd dog because of mangiosarcoma, um, which, yeah, you know, that I looked at the cytology and made, you know, decisions on what what to do next for him and yeah it just actually it was the cbc data that i got back from him that i was like oh no <laughs> no 
let's do an ultrasound. Um, so it helps me uh, work with my animals. I, I think I enjoy them. Uh, just, I guess everybody enjoys their pets, of course, but um, it's fun to be around them. It's fun to look at their behavior and yeah, think, think about, think about them. It, it definitely makes me more aware of, you know, trying to make sure they're vaccinated and taken care of nutritionally and, and things like that too. But I'm really sorry about losing your puppy. Oh, thanks. It happens. <laughs> yeah. Aside from that, do you find yourself more likely to, you know, bring a slide home from them, you know, look at fecals or anything? Absolutely. No, 100%. Um, yeah. If there's a lump or a bump, I'm going to stick it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. But that doesn't stop you from loving them and interacting. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. That's great. <laughs> And I hope that, you know, that your experiences with your German Shepherd, you know, though, you know, that they don't cloud any, any further, you know, love for your, your pets. You don't get scared. Right. No, thankfully I don't. I feel that, you know, the training and and work as a pathologist, you, you realize what reality is and what things can happen and what you can do about them or not do about them. And, um, just have to enjoy your, your pets and people while you can (laughs) and thank you for all you do for all of the future trainees both here and in the world because the the research that you're doing the the techniques that you're implementing and the paths that you have carved definitely will help everyone in the future oh thanks i hope so (laughs) and with that um deepest gratitude to you for being willing to sit down with us and being on this ACVP podcast and sharing your stories. Well, thanks for asking. It was, it was great. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And before we end out this segment, we want to send out a huge thanks. Your current hosts are primarily anatomic pathologists, and we recognize that we unintentionally view the world through this lens. In aligning with the missions of ACVP, we look to strengthen our collaborations with those in different subspecialties by partnering with two incredible clinical pathologists on writing questions for these interviews. Um, so huge thank you to Dr. K. Worry Davis and Matthew Snexnader, uh, who were generous enough to contribute to the questions for uh, this podcast. You can listen to this podcast anywhere that you get your podcasts, including Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Podchaser. We also look forward to seeing you at the ACVP and ASVCP annual meeting in Chicago, Illinois, October 28th through 31st, 2023. There's still plenty of time to register. See you there. Thanks again, and thanks for listening.